Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. I recently rediscovered the magic of eBay. As a teenager, I found this auction website to hold great power as it served as a way to connect me to the past. Some of my latest purchases have included a few out-of-print books to help me with future research for crypt episodes. Additionally, I acquired a set of CDs featuring girl group sounds from the 1960s. And what makes this particular find so neat is that the CDs came inside a hat box. I love this so much and can't wait to add some of these tunes to my mixtapes of the future. However, one of my most exciting finds has been the purchase of a set of Dick Tracy Applause brand dolls from the year 1990. Tracy and the gang just moved into my abode and are settling in quite nicely with the dolls. Breathless, itchy, flat top, big boy, prune face, and of course, Dick Tracy. All look forward to meeting you soon. This cast of characters will, of course, be future stars in a Learning Manners with David Manners episode. Speaking of which, I really gotta get back on that project. I do apologize, my little crypt dwellers, for the delay with the next episode. Life sorta just flies away sometimes. I'll try to work on a new episode soon. Who knows, maybe Flattop may even make an appearance. No doubt he would benefit from some manners. Hello, gentlemen. Where's Lips Manless? Who's Lips Manless? Yeah, who's Lips Manless? We get to make one phone call. That's the law. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Give me the phone. There's the phone. Be my guest. Make a note, Pat. They waived their right to a phone call. Right, Tracy. Hey, copper. Maybe you ought to look before you leap, huh? We got rights. Take the bad men away. They scare me. Up, Up Gladys. Out of here. Yeah, well, we got rights too, you know. See around, Tracy, huh? Come on. These items from my past have been bringing me much comfort in these darkened days. Who knows what else I shall find as I continue my trip down nostalgia lane. For a few bucks, I am provided with such joy. Lastly, you may recall in the previous episode of The Crypt, I discussed that I will be conducting mixtape experiments from my laboratory. After much contemplation, I have decided that the theme for my first tape shall be Norma and Norman, featuring sounds of the Bates Motel office. I won't be making many tapes, but if you are interested in finding one in your mailbox, drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt 
at gmail.com. And now our feature presentation. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Today I shall be prying open the coffin of Virginia Bruce to uncover her 1940 film, The Invisible Woman, directed by A. Edward Sutherland, a name you may recall from a previous episode, as he had been initially brought on by Universal to helm Dracula's Daughter, which inevitably ended up being directed by Lambert Hiller. As for The Invisible Woman, this flick was new to me, and unfortunately, it did not live up to my expectations, and is another movie that has now landed on my list of rewrite dreams. Despite the story not delivering, there are still a few things worth gabbing about, such as the performance from our corpse of interest, Virginia Bruce, and the special effects that were utilized to create the invisible trickery. I suppose I shouldn't be too surprised by the grandiose effects, as the production was said to have cost Universal Studios $300,000. This was about twice the amount of a typical B-movie of the time that was produced by Universal. It inevitably became one of the studio's most expensive pictures of the 1940s. The story opens with a pesky professor named Gibbs, played by John Barrymore, and he is in need of funds. His experiments have long been funded by a wealthy lawyer, Richard Russell, played by John Howard. With the fear of losing his benefactor, the professor is determined to prove one of his experiments a success. He runs a personal ad stating, a human being Willing to become invisible. Busted! Good! Wonderful! Come into the lab, quick! Well, they're all open. Now will you tell me what they are? Answers to my ad I put in the paper. My boy, all your troubles are over. You'll make millions out of this. Millions. Millions out of what? Uh, come on, come on. Help me, uh, help me pick the victim. You know, a peculiar fellow took my ad. Thought I was cuckoo. The victim ends up being Kitty Carroll, played by Virginia Bruce, a fiery former department store model who is tired of the rat race. She seeks adventure and wants more out of life than just living check to check. And well, wants to teach her terrible boss, Mr. Growley, a lesson. Oh, have you got a feller? Hooray, he's made an appointment. Oh, then you have got a feller. This isn't from a feller, Mrs. Patton. This is the call to adventure. What would you do if you could completely disappear? Oh, don't tell me that you're thinking about running out on me when your room rent's way past due. Oh, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, but um, I, after all, I've got to live, you know. Live. 
get up in the morning, run for the subway, punch the clock, get kicked around all day by that nasty little Mr. Growley, punch the clock, run for the subway, and go to bed. Dream about the subway. So you're going to dream yourself out of your job if you don't get going. Oh, dear, the time clock. Bye. Kitty becomes the doctor's first test subject and ends up being quite a success. Even before Kitty posed the question, What would you do if you could become invisible? I too found myself wondering what I would do if given the chance. For Kitty, she is not looking to do anything sinister, like committing murder. She just wants to give her former employer a swift kick in the pants, and that is exactly what she does. Upon becoming invisible, she does not even give the professor the opportunity to show off his success. She flees the scene, unbeknownst to the literal, absent-minded Mr. Gibbs. I must add, in conducting my research, I was not surprised to learn that John Barrymore, who played the Professor Gibbs, suffered from alcoholism, which caused him much difficulty during the production of this film. His lines were forced to be written on cue cards and attached in various places amongst the set, such as props, walls, and on the floor. Often, it is witnessed during several of his line deliveries, his eyeline moves in various directions. However, there was someone that did notice Kitty escaping, and that would be the professor's assistant of sorts, Mrs. Jackson, played by Margaret Hamilton. What have I done? Yeah, she's gone! Of course she's gone. That's what I tried to tell you. Where? 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 How do I know? Didn't she say anything? Yes. She said, growly, growly, here I come. But that, that doesn't make sense. Me- growly, growly, here I come. Growly, growly. Speaking of Margaret, before we continue with this tale of invisibility, let's take an intermission of sorts, my little crypt dwellers. Follow me as we venture on a trip to the morgue to chat corpses with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Margaret Hamilton, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. Who are we wheeling out of storage tonight? Well, let me tell you, you are in for a special treat with today's specimen. A character corpse known for her piercing voice in witchy ways on the silver screen, Margaret Hamilton. There's a person outside, Professor, to see you about your ad. Good, send him in. It's a her. A her. You mean skirts and things? Mm, skirts and things. Mrs. Jackson, you're letting me down. I can't possibly perform my experiment unless the subject doesn't wear it. My hasn't any is, is you know, in the, uh, in the altogether, as it were. Uh, what am I going to do? Well, how should I know? Dear, dear, I can't afford to lose her. I mean, I might never find another. I have it, you tell her. Tell her what? 
about the uh, disrobing. Uh, tell her it's purely in the interest of science. You know, uh, uh, we can put her behind the screen and nothing could be more proper. And of course, during the experiment, you'll stay right here. Well, I don't know as I want to see folks get invisible. Might give me a turn. It's her or you, Mrs. Jackson. Take your choice. You are either victim or chaperone. Wait. You mean laid out on this very slab is the lady that played the vicious witch from the West that took Dorothy's doggo? I have to admit, as a small child, she sure gave me a fright. What was her cause of death? Well, the poor thing developed Alzheimer's disease and ultimately went sleepies after suffering a heart attack while she slept on May 16, 1985. She was 82 years old. Minus the memory disease, checking out your sleep seems like a pretty good option. Let's say we slice her open and take a look around. Why, yes, scalpel, please. I think we shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her fiendish smile. Number two, the fact that she was the queen of the side-eye. Number three, her razor-sharp features. Number four, her diabolical cackle. And number five, her shrill articulation with rapid-fire delivery. I find this examination to be quite thorough, Dr. Carruthers. Despite Margaret's role in The Invisible Woman being a bit part, almost all of those characteristics, though, were still on full display. I haven't watched many of her movies, and I was wondering which ones you've seen and if you have a favorite Margaret Hamilton performance. Well, I like that she wasn't like your typical... Hollywood glamour girl. One that really sticks out to me that I really liked was in the 1960 William Castle movie, 13 Ghosts. Have you seen that one? I actually haven't, but I believe I just came across this recently, and I can't remember why I wanted to watch it. I honestly don't think it was because of her, Mm -hmm. though, but it's kind of, now it's just moved up on my list knowing that she's in it. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's a little silly, but like a lot of those old, you know, haunted house movies, but it's fun. So in it, she plays a housekeeper named Elaine, and she's stuck in this haunted house. But she plays actually like a really sympathetic character, and she's treated with a lot of suspicion because of looking like a quote-unquote witch. Yeah, so it's kind of like an example of how physical appearances are given way too much importance. So her performance is really good. The movie, as I said, is pretty goofy, but her performance is played very straight and serious. And one thing that I know you would love about this movie is that she also conducts a seance. Okay, This may be why I stumbled upon it then, because I think when I was researching Supernatural, Mm -hmm. I think it was on like a list of movies with seances. Yes. So even just for that fact alone, I think you should check it out. But I have a question. How do you feel about actors playing a role so well that they get typecast 
for the, for the rest of their careers? Yeah, that's a really good question because I do find it somewhat unfortunate, but then I also see it as being bittersweet because I feel that when someone does get typecasts, it's often because audiences have found them to be effective in that role. And I think in a sense, people just want to continue to relive that moment of when they saw that character. In regards to Margaret, though, I did read that she felt she was pretty aware of, you know, she's not going to be getting, as you said, like these glamorous Hollywood roles. Yeah. There was a story that when her agent, I guess, first called her about being in Wizard of Oz, she had responded that she loved reading these books to her kindergarten children. She was a teacher before she was an actor. Did you know that? Well, only because of doing this podcast, I I didn't know that prior to doing a bit of research. Yeah, neither did I. Uh, so I found that to be pretty interesting. So she had remarked to the agent, He said, uh, they're sort of interested in you uh, for a part in The Wizard of Oz. And I said, oh gosh, think of that. I said, I love that story from the time I was four years old. What is it? And he said, well, the witch. And I said, the witch. And he said, then he said the final thing. He said, yes, what else? <laughs> that made me sad because I do think that happens quite often to actors. They just do something so well and they just continue to get stuck in that. The sad part is moviegoers, I, I feel, eventually become fatigued, and then often the actor is blamed for that. Which then you'll find that there's people who just simply, like, disappear, you don't see them in things, because they can't seem to get apart again. Mm -hmm. This, and I was also thinking when, you know, you asked this question about, it happens a lot, I think, to people who start out on TV, especially if they're in some sort of like hit show, which that has to be exciting. But then at the same point, anytime that person tries to go, you know, do a movie part, I think people always see them as, oh, they were in that show. Mm -hmm. it, it's a shame, but I really do wish that Hollywood would take more chances. But then in making movies myself, obviously, sometimes those chances cost a lot of money. So maybe there's an actor that will try to convince you, oh yes, I can play a villain. But then, you know, as you start to make the movie, you're like, wow, this isn't working out. Uh, but I did, I was thinking though, like if I could like dream cast things, one of the things like I wish Hollywood would take a chance on is, could you imagine like Kate Blanchett playing Dracula? Absolutely. And I, I feel like they wouldn't bring her up as somebody that could do that or would want to do that, but I would love it. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I just wish that Hollywood would think more outside of the box. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I definitely agree with you on that. Thinking more of Margaret leading up to recording this, I actually remembered an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where Margaret Hamilton visited Mr. Rogers. 
And it was, yeah, it was one of those things where I wasn't totally sure if it was, if it, I was just imagining it or remembering it wrong or if it actually happened. But of course, with the magic of the internet, I was able to find it. In this segment, uh, Mr. Rogers asked her how she felt to play this character. Because, you know, lots of kids were scared of her performance. I was scared of it as a kid, too. I loved it, but it was still scary. And so they're kind of talking about what that was like for her. And she mentioned that most people think that the witch is just pure evil. But she says that there's more to it than that. And she goes on to say she's frustrated. She's unhappy because she never gets what she wants. Most people get a bit of what they want, but she never got anything she wanted. And when she said that, I really, I kind of thought about it when she first shows up in the movie. All she really wanted was first to know who killed her sister, because her sister was just killed. And second, she wanted her dead sister's shoes. Really, that's what she wanted. So. I'm not saying I agree with all of her actions, but if you think of it, she may have been acting out of grief, and she at least deserved answers. So hearing her kind of talk about it made me think a little more about that. And I'm sure that there are folks who know more about this world of Oz and all the books, much better than I do, that could tell me I'm way off here. But regardless, that performance of The Wicked Witch has been imprinted on my brain since the first time I ever saw it as a little kid. And on this Mr. Rogers Neighborhoods segment, she put on her witch costume and she did the laugh and actually got a chill. It was so great. How nice. Yes. That's my skirt. <laughs> How would you put that? Oh, you oh, just I put, put it around like, like this. And tie it. Look at here. <laughs> something to put things in. Even witches have to have pockets. There. It's helping me just to see you get into these things. Oh, I'm glad. To know that you're a real lady who got dressed up to play this part. Mm. I want to turn around and I'll show my friends that this is a real zipper back here, just like the zipper on my sweaters. There it goes. There. There. <laughs> oh, that looks that great. You know, this is just like a Halloween costume, too, isn't it? It really is. Oh, yes, there's the cape. Now, see? Sometimes I wear the cape and fly it around like that. And sometimes I don't wear the cape at all. Would you take the cape and then it, Mr. Certainly. Rogers? Thank you. And now the hat. Now let's see. There. Oh, there's your old friend, the Wicked Witch of the West. How did she, <laughs> how did she talk? Well, she talked like this. It's very nice to see you. <laughs> oh, that would be fun to be able to talk like, like you that. You can. Too. They all can. That's awesome. I was reading for this episode a bit about her life in the sense of After the Witch, where everywhere she went, people would ask her to do the laugh. She said it was strange because it was something that people wanted to hear, but then didn't want to hear. 
Yeah. Because they were scared. Which makes me go back to, like, could you imagine if you walked into kindergarten on the first day and she was your teacher? <laughs> now, mind you, she, you know, did teach before her acting career. But it just, like, kind of made me think about it. And to your point, when I saw the movie as a child, I was also scared of her. I can't imagine knowing now about the witch like if she would have been my teacher i would have been terrified <laughs> one final thought that i found that was very interesting was that she loved having pen pals later in life and when people would write to her and i guess you know after a few correspondences if they were coming to visit new york city she would invite them to her apartment which obviously people may find strange but i found it really cool which i'm sure you're not surprised no i think it's cool too i didn't know that yeah like could you imagine being invited to her apartment to like have tea i'd go yeah so i thought that was pretty cool and it also went along with what i read what people felt about working with her like on film sets because i found this to be really important because so many people just correlate her name with like oh she was this like evil witch but people mm -hmm. that worked with her actually were saying no she was the complete opposite of that she was extremely charming funny and very friendly and that was the other thing about being typecast like it made me kind of sad because even like her picture on imdb it looks like she's mean yeah and I feel like I'm so happy that we decided to autopsy her because now I have a totally different opinion about her. Me too. And I almost wish that I could have seen her in like a comedy mm -hmm. or just something fun because I do feel like they just so often like put her in kind of drab clothing and just made her look as you had said, like in the 13th Ghosts, they thought she was a witch. Yeah. I wish that she would have had an opportunity to do some other things. I agree. So I feel sometime we should send her a note. Hmm. Good idea. Yeah. But for now, I think let's grab the blankie. I believe we should tuck her in. Good night, Margaret. Good night. And now, on with the show. Let's get back to Kitty, shall we? To be clear, I did not dislike everything about this movie. I found Virginia's performance as Kitty to be quite entertaining, and I'm guessing many others did too, as The Invisible Woman became her most well-known picture. I think Virginia Bruce managed to make the most of the Kitty Carroll character, and that was particularly noticed in the scene when she takes revenge on her boss and ends up being, by far, my most favorite moment of the film. Growly, you miserable, wicked men. Bullying poor little working girls, firing them, docking them, and enjoying it. The day of reckoning has come. Now you'll see how it feels when the shoe's on the other foot. Oh, Mr. Growly. If a girl's late, you're finer. If a girl's got a cold, you're fire You certainly do things the hard way. There it goes. And maybe you 
should be sent after it. Please, whoever you are. I am the voice of your conscience. Lean over the window, so growly. Oh, I... I said lean over. Unfortunately, after this scene, the picture goes in another direction, and in my opinion, becomes rather convoluted as the script seems to try to throw everything at you, hoping something will stick. Something to note, there were three screenwriters on this picture. A picture that only clocks in at one hour and 12 minutes. Makes you think, huh? After Kitty's bout with taking down the man, her and the professor visit the millionaire playboy lawyer, Richard Russell, in his remote lodge in the woods. The professor is hoping to convince Richard that his machine does indeed work, hoping to secure additional funding for his experiments. If I could see you alone for a moment. Alone, eh? What for? I've done it, my lad. I've brought her. She's here. Now, just take it easy, professor, and everything will be all right. Mr. Russell, look! There it goes again! Stop staring, stupid. Give him this. Go on, give it to him. I hope you're ashamed of yourself, young woman. Young? Of course I'm young. I found this scene in particular to get on my everlasting nerve. As Richard is a complete louse, and the professor shows his true colors as well, and is rather despicable. Both men not only say demeaning things aimed at Kitty, but just come off as two whiny and annoying babies. My eyes couldn't have rolled farther back in my head when Richard believes the reason for Kitty's invisibility was to hide her stylish, stout figure. I much enjoyed Kitty's sentiment, though, about Richard Russell. Say, Professor, is this the guy who's going to promote your cute little machine? Uh, uh, yes, yes, of course. Pardon me. Uh, uh, Miss uh, Carroll, Mr. Richard Russell. How do you do? Huh. I don't think much of him. He's no businessman. He's a, a playboy. I've seen his pictures in the papers. <laughs> they call him the Patsy of the Pacific. Yeah? While the professor and Kitty are off at the lodge, a gangster, Blackie Cole's mob pals, one of which would be quite recognizable to most, Shemp Howard, notably from the Three Stooges. Will these gangsters steal the invisible device, taking it back to their hideout? I know, this plot just comes out of left field. Of course, to the surprise of no one, These bumbling idiots can't get the machine to work. With Kitty now returned to a visible state, the gang kidnaps her and the professor in hopes to help them get the device up and running. Kitty has other plans in mind, though. As she recalls, when drinking alcohol, it restores her invisibility. A little trick she learned when visiting Richard's Lodge. She uses her invisibility to take out the mob, which was rather fun to watch. The film does take a turn for the worse, though, when it decides to end in a magical marriage ending. Kitty of Corpse, tying the knot with Richard, and within seconds, seems to produce a baby. This does lead to a rather intriguing end, though, when it is realized the invisibility was passed down to the baby. 
Despite its clumsy storytelling, The Invisible Woman did go on to be nominated in 1942 for an Academy Award for its special effects. Even though Kitty ends up being more visible than in previous productions of The Invisible Man, most notably the 1933 James Whale picture starring Claude Rains. I tried searching for more information on how they accomplished the invisibility effects, but was only able to find information on Whale's version, which he made use of practical effects, such as wires and stagehands that were kept off screen, to accomplish a lot of the invisible trickery. In The Invisible Woman, with the special effects that are on full display, along with Virginia's zany performance, it makes the film worth at least one watch. You won't find me saying this often, but I do feel this would be a movie that would most benefit from a remake, especially if it lost the mob plot and sexist statements. Instead, keep the focus on a lady's quest to take down her capitalist oppressors. One last thing to note about the film is the fact that Kitty Carroll spends the majority of the movie in the buff. For if she wore clothes, she would of course be visible. I can only imagine how scandalous that was back in 1940. Virginia would make 81 films over the course of her career and stopped acting in 1960. Virginia was laid to rest on February 24, 1982, at the age of 72. She died from cancer. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you are interested in checking out the flick, the only way I was able to find a copy was by purchasing The Invisible Man Universal Monsters Legacy Collection, which includes all six Invisible Man flicks. The Invisible Woman, being the third installment in the series. This collection was a mere 20 bucks on the wild world of the internets. And despite The Invisible Woman not living up to my expectations, I still found this set to be worth owning just for the Claude Rains rendition of The Invisible Man. In my next episode, I will pry open the coffin of Robert Walker to dissect and examine the 1948 film one Touch of Venus. Walker was taken far too soon, dying at the age of 32, but he managed to leave his mark in Hollywood with an impressive, yet small, filmography. I can't wait to uncover this gem of a flick with you, in which he finds himself a window dresser at a department store who kisses a statue of Venus, only to have it come to life, played by the beautiful and glamorous Ava Gardner. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the show, like this one from crypt listener and paranormal enthusiast, Roderick Towers. My dear friend Rosalie, is not just one of the driving forces behind my favorite film periodical, Movie John, but she's also the host of my favorite film podcast, Cinematic Crypt. 
Each episode, she exhumes a corpse from Hollywood's golden era and dissects an entry in their filmography. It's as though Vampira bled through to an episode of Turner Classic Movies. Truly an elegant devil, Rosalie has highlighted lurid tales such as Frankenstein 1970, Dracula's Daughter, and Bewitched. On one of her more recent episodes, she performs a post-watch examination on one of my favorite films on spiritualists, Supernatural. I encourage everyone to give it a listen. It's the best time you can have in the dark, even with the lights on. And you can quote me on that, old sport. Wow. Thank you, Roderick Towers. And take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah. So log into iTunes to leave your own review. Or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. We have just began to work on the summer issue, which will feature films that focus on circuses, carnivals, and state fairs. It is sure to be one you don't want to miss. So make sure to subscribe at moviejohn.com shop. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you are wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, or email us at dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old-fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via postal mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. All of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com, under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember... For every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday.
is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph. My tombstone quote, compliments of Kitty Carroll. This is worse than dressing in the dark. Sure, my bunk might be velvet lined and comfy, but it sure is hard to change into my jammies at night in such tight quarters. Goodbye, film pals. Also, uh, yeah, if I just get too weird, <laughs> like, tell me. Okay.